Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. And today we'll be talking about trust. I thought it might be a good place to start out um, to discuss trust and its current value. Uh, It seems like trust is and has been one of the most uh, valued qualities, like that an individual can have or in a social context or political context. Um, but in this current political moment, it seems like it's a really fraught issue, especially because of the proliferation of fake news and the election of Donald Trump, which was a lot about distrust in political institutions and the elite. So I wonder how you think about trust, considering that it it has this like sheen of being valued. Mm. But if you crack that sheen at all, it seems to be underutilized and underappreciated on the whole. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think there are two things operating around trust that make it worth interrogating. One is the notion of reliability, and the other is around truth. And they don't necessarily go together. And I think about Reagan here as the quintessential example. Reagan was predictable. He beat the same drum every election cycle after pretty much 1966 with a brief blip the first time he ran for president. He was like, the Soviets are bad, welfare is bad, government is the problem, taxes are bad. And he said it for basically 30 years after he switched from, from being a Democrat and the head union boss in California to being a Republican. So people like reliable politicians who say the same things all the time. And that favors the GOP because their message is simpler and it is more punitive. And people respond to both the fear and the simplicity of their message as it's repeated ad nauseum over and over and over and over and over again. It's a good space to create really reliable discourse content. On the other side, though, is about truthiness and its relationship to truth. And so I was thinking as I was preparing for this episode about Stephen Colbert's coining that term truthy to describe something that feels like the truth, right? That comes from your gut, that that you haven't really checked out or read about, but it seems like it could be true. And I think that in the contemporary political moment, we are grappling with the relationship between you know, consistent messaging as something that's reliable and its relationship to truth and truthiness. That is, I think, where the political climate is right now. And the GOP, certainly since the Bush administration, but definitely Reagan, operated in the truthy space, right? Trickle-down economics seems truthy. I mean, it has no basis in economic theory, really. Uh, and certainly not in practice. It's not a real thing. If you give tax breaks to the rich, they don't go get their tires changed at the local tire center. They're, that money doesn't come back. It gets held, and it gets untaxed, and it becomes generational wealth for their people, but it doesn't actually trickle down to their communities. It's a spoil system. So for me, I'm thinking a lot about this you know, persistence of consistent ideology, and we like that because we don't like uncertainty and then our inability to understand what's true. And for me, I think that that comes from a lot of things. I think a lot of it comes from a lack of self-trust. I think Americans do not trust themselves. Uh, In earlier episodes, I've talked about repression and restraint 
and sort of the impulse, the emotional impulse for people to have to socially control others because others can't control themselves. And that seems to me a symptom of a total lack of our ability to trust ourselves to make good judgments for ourselves, whether that's women who are obtaining abortion care or whether that's people who are making decisions for themselves that go against sort of the social norm in other ways. That's, I think, where the concern is. So you, you talk about this inability for people to uh, distinguish what is the truth. It's interesting that you place that in the framework of the Reagan administration, because I think people used to look, assume the truth or look for the truth from institutions. So there's like this vertical association with what's the truth, sure. because there are experts that you can rely on, you know, that tell you certain truths about economics or your health care or black holes you don't know anything about it and so you have to trust the authority of other people but now i think there's like this distrust in that vertical system of authority and now i think people are like choosing more and more to rely on people who are like them as credible sources of information and i feel like that yeah it's just cognitive <laughs> bias it's completely selective right. bias yeah i mean well i don't think people trust themselves in certain ways, but also they want to believe that they're right about things. And so they trust, you know, people who are like them and who share their beliefs on the Facebook. That creates a weird new information loop where truth doesn't come from institutions and not, it shouldn't, but it also shouldn't, like the, the trust has been transferred to a place where truth is still hard to identify. I mean, it's hard to say because really it's not until the progressive era during and after the 1912 election where the notion of experts leading government really became a dominant focus for what political action should look, what public service should look like, what governmental agencies should look like. So the notion of institutional trust is actually fairly new in American history. But in terms of the way that we talk about it, Reagan did the most damage to our ability to build trust for institutions to build data. And so data is not the same as truth. Data, right, if we think about science over time, scientists have been wrong about stuff, but then they keep testing and they find another explanation or a clearer explanation, or they revise their hypotheses. And you know, science is about reason, not truth. Empiricism is about reason and not truth. The liberal arts that are conceived are about hypothesis testing lots of if different ideas and coming to conclusions about how they all relate to one another. They're imperfect, they're, they are incomplete, and yet they are messy, interesting places to think about how to build a culture. I, a lot of people, especially in a country like the U.S. that has such a massive rich-poor gap and such an unequal distribution of education and resources, there are whole swaths of the U.S., particularly in rural America, where access to truth is completely limited <laughs> by access to lack of access to resources. And so truthiness then has to suffice. And so then, of course, truthiness is a much slip more slippery, a more insecure space to interrogate ideas, especially if you don't have the intellectual tools. So I think that, yeah, there is, with the monopolization of media with the erosion of people's subscriptions to mainstream media with the Fox Newsification of the culture people are just shitty consumers of ideas 
and they certainly don't, are not producing them. So they become, at, they, they exist at the whim of corporations and media conglomerates, which is not healthy for democracy. Well, it is, it is hard to be a responsible consumer of media, and it's hard to be a responsible consumer of information. Because, I mean, you were saying science is about reason and not truth. And it, it does seem to be the case that a lot of scientific findings are misguided or funded by certain interest groups sure. that affect the results. Um, <laughs> and are oftentimes flawed studies, and so it's hard to equate truth with the testimony of experts. It's, it's difficult to even identify wh where you can place trust when, you know, there are, you know, institutions that are doing scientific research and it's unclear that their interests are aligned with the public's. And it's unclear that the interests of mainstream media and investigative reporting are aligned with the interests of the public. Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the problem is corporatization, whether it's happening in media or whether it's happening at the university or whether it's happening in science. The more people want everything to be a business, the less likely we are to get reliable claims that get us closer to reason and ultimate truth. So they are actually obstacles. You, you cannot corporatize every part and f function of civil society and then expect the truth to be delivered. You know, they're dependent variables. The more corporatization that you have, the less likely you are to get honest stuff and the more likely you are to get corruption. Corporations have no vested interest in the civic good. There's nothing compelling to do them to do that. There's no incentivizing of it for the most part. And so with it not being their civic responsibility to perform civic goodness, they won't do it, which is why you had such a garbage news cycle this time that was so light on substance and so high on, you know, this celebrity kind of culture around Donald Trump, and you had people who wanted him to be president that were part of the global you know, media elite that also suppressed information that would have been useful to voters. So there's nefarious stuff happening, and there's stuff that's just a totally predictable byproduct of the corporatization of media that become a problem. But for individual people, it's not just like the problem is political, like I didn't understand what I was doing when I voted for you know, Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. That's one problem. But that's not where it ends, right? Because the inability to understand and to accurately describe reality then fun funnels into everybody's personal lives, too. I, so I started talking months and months and months ago about how Trump was gaslighting the United States, about how he was representing reality in a way that didn't exist, and then basically lashing out and using rhetorical and symbolic violence to punish anybody who contradicted his view of what he was doing to other people. I think that there is an incredibly strong relationship between a lack of trust in institutions prompted by total corporatization of civic society and gaslighting where we blame the victim for his or her punishment by the state. And that is a problem. And that creates an almost totally immobilized culture that cannot see its way out of its own morass and cannot read its way through the scene because the literacy skills are so minimal. So I, that's why we're seeing the destruction of public education at the same time that we're seeing the rise of Trumpism and you know the corporatization of media. I don't know, I mean, I, uh, corporations, don't have a vested interest in trust unless it's like as a marketing strategy. Sure. And I, I feel like a lot of corporations use 
like trust and reliability as a cornerstone of, of their brand, their yeah. brand, like Coca-Cola, uh, McDonald's. I mean, all of those companies use consistency as a yeah uh, a marketing <laughs> strategy, and there are even companies that use social media branding that try and use like authentic voices as a way to earn people's trust. I don't think there's an inherent distrust of corporations. I think there should be though. <laughs> but there should be, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, there should be. Right. I mean, you know, in this way I'm sort of transcendentalist. It's a very Emersonian sort of perspective. He was a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. You know, I'm not about consistency that way. And the demand for consistency and the demand for this reliable, static narrative creates a cognitive comfort that's lazy and it's intellectually incurious. And I feel very strongly that it undercuts the possibility and potentiality to create a highly functioning democratic civic culture. So, you know, I, I actually think that while there is a demand for this, that the demand comes from a lack of resources, intellectual resources. I mean, here's the thing. If we look at the election, Hillary Clinton won all but two of the most urbanized areas in American culture. Trump won all the rural poor people, right? Poor white people and poor people. And so what does that tell us about the way in which people can read and perceive information? The people who voted for Hillary Clinton were not all Hillary Clinton supporters. They understood that there were stakes and sometimes you have to choose somebody that you're not totally thrilled about because politics is about compromise and sorry about you. They're not your, you know, alter ego or your spirit animal or your patronus. That's not what you're doing. What you're doing is trying to make an informed decision between two people who are flawed about who can do the best and represent the widest swath of American culture in ways that are productive for the civic civic life. And so, yeah, I think people want consistency, but I think consistency is the enemy of democracy, quite frankly, which is why. And, you know, here's a good example of this. Uh, people across the political spectrum don't like Common Core in public education. And they're right to distrust it because the movement to standardize public education refuses the variables in the ground. Those variables that range from, you know, food insecurity among the students to resources at home to computer literacy to broadband access to teacher salary towards classroom size, towards fair dismissal policies, towards well-trained superintendents. All of those variables are what contribute to a lively, vibrant political sphere in any given classroom school building or school district and so there is a reason why people across both aisles fundamentally oppose the standardization of public education and that is a space where liberals in particular really need to climb down off of the privatization of public education bandwagon and pull their heads out of their asses because that movement is absolutely what is eroding their own base's ability to see for themselves how profitability functions in this marketplace that's completely and totally rigged by the elite. <laughs> Well, <laughs> to put a, I made a point of point there. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I mean, part of that is a result of the, the decline in robust civic culture and the engagement within that culture. People have base expectations without being actively involved in a way that like, communities used to actually be involved in schools. 
Well, I mean, I hate to mythologize it too much because America, has, there's not this point in the past that we can point to and be like, here was a nice mixture of civic engagement and, you know, governmental responsibility and we should just replicate it because that's not a thing. It is always a struggle in process that is imperfect and highly flawed, especially around public education. Like, we really have not had a national conversation about public education that was in any way comprehensive since we started doing compulsory public education at the turn of the 20th century. All of the rest has been tweaks either about desegregation or about corporatization, but not about education as a whole and whether it's a fundamental right of all Americans, which I obviously think that it is. Right as we are recording this, Governor Cuomo in New York says he wants to make college free for all eligible New York students. Now, you know, the word eligible gives me some pause, but at the end of the day, that's the direction that urban spaces are going to have to go to if they want to train smart elite workforces, which is not the model that's happening in rural spaces, because it is much harder and is less efficient to deliver democracy in rural spaces, which is why most people flee those rural spaces to go to urban spaces, right? It is much more efficient to deliver democracy in urban spaces. It is much less efficient to deliver them in rural spaces. So urban spaces are the ones that are producing the most literate, the most computer function, the best people at STEM, the most spa the spaces where there are a higher degree of rights granted because they are more polyglot, they're more heterogeneous, they are more creative, they are more um, dynamic. And so the rest of America is staying static, and those, Amer those, those static places are the ones that watch Fox News, and they just want some fat white dude screaming at them constantly about the evil doers that are constantly at the borders of their homestead or their state or their nation. It's, that's just exhausting. They live in these fear cages. They don't have the emotional or intellectual resources to get out of them, and it's not entirely their fault because it's just simply inefficient to deliver the resources there, and they consistently vote against their own best interests because they can't actually identify where their interests converge with people of color, other kinds of poor people, and other different kinds of circumstances. So their limits of empathy get tested, and that also then tests their ability to participate more fully as citizens. So yeah, you're right, that that's, that's how that goes. And then once you've lost their trust, what happens? I mean, well, it's harder for them to see that the government's upholding its end of the social contract. That's like a key to the democratic process for people to vote in the interests of the greater public, they have to, there's a social contract that they think the government is going to value their interests and a lot of the poor white folks and the poor black folks don't, partially because they haven't been. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I in other countries, it's, in Italy, it was a huge issue and there were almost no resources being funneled to the south of Italy in the last decade, and Silvio Berlusconi rose to power. <laughs> He's like uh, an analog total to fascist, total yeah, fascist, yeah, a total analog to Donald Trump. And so, I don't know. We didn't. I mean, a lot of people drew that parallel, but I mean, when you don't take care of those types of people, I the mafia takes over. Yeah. So the mafia is. Providing a political, they provide providing services. services. The church provides a lot of services in rural America. Yes, and so how do we not see that <laughs> affecting the political process in a, 
in a broader scale. I mean, no, you're totally right about that. The thing is, is that a democracy is only as strong as its weakest members. And so if you're actually invested in any democratic ideals, you actually have to provide them for, like, all of the people. And you can't index them based on race or gender or class or geography or whatever else, ability. You cannot do that. That's fundamentally anti-democratic. So when we think about trust as something that is to be cultivated politically, it's very hard because Americans on the whole distrust politicians. What Congress today, this is early January of 2017, has a 17% approval rating and just tried to vote to abolish its Independent Ethics Commission. I mean, people do not have faith in government. And the reason that they have they don't have it is because government is not actually working for them. At the same time, only c- government can deliver the things that they need. But they'll trust the church. Yeah. Because it's a heavily networked system. It's also stable. No, but it's it's no, it's not even that. And that's a true thing. But I think that that's not the thing that's happening. The stage is this. The church is immutable. It's an immutable presence in rural America. It is the space for community. It is just like you were saying. It's a space that delivers services and community. And if you that if that's all that you have, that's all that you have. It is a stable, predictable, rhetorical space that you can count on to be consistent in the same way that I was talking about with Reagan. Politics on the whole, on the larger scale is much messier than that. This is where Democrats get into trouble, right? Because they want to create all this nuance, but you can't explain nuance to people who can't read. And so they get lost in their own hubris and bullshit and circle jerking and navel gazing, and then they can't actually communicate with the people that they pretend to represent. And so they, and so that's exactly what has happened. That is exactly what the conversation was between the candidacy of Bernie Sanders and the candidacy of Hillary Clinton is about who could listen and who could talk to different populations. Nobody's saying that about Trump. Nobody On the right, nobody gives a shit about that. They want to feel the feelings. They want somebody to say the feelings that they feel. That's what they want. They want an emotional release. They want a giant angry orgasm about how rural America has been totally screwed over by NAFTA and automation and, you know, and overseas corporations fleeing from the United States and they want a protectionist sort of space where they don't have to do any kind of cognitive flexibility they don't have to accommodate anybody else's desires they don't have to live in harmony with people who are unlike them they just get to build their walls and live in their gated communities and get their dragons and dig their moats and lock everybody else out and it's it's fundamentally anti-democratic and there's a part of which you know the GOP I think certainly members of the old guard and I think people who have buyer's remorse about Trump are going to peel away from that and say this is actually not what we signed up for and they will be activated to flip away from him and mobilize a different kind of political moment. It's up to the Democrats, I think, to go to the left, especially in the urban areas, and push the issue much more loudly than they have in the past. And that's going to be very, very hard for progressives in red states um, because it's going to be a much longer, harder slog here. Although the the tide, as it always does, it turns, right? Politics is recursive. We see the same themes repeat over and over and over again in mostly the same kind of fashion. And we have an opportunity now to reframe the issues in ways that create unique vectors to explain interest convergence among different groups of people, which is why class has to be an important component. Uh, it's it's unclear about how the identity politics will poison that kind of conversation, even though it obviously will and it has limitations. Yeah, the class issue is enormous, and it allowed candidates like Trump to use distrust as a, a mobilization for voters. Yes. And and Bernie Sanders did the same thing. No, I, I mean, know totally. You know, I'm on that tip. <laughs> the two 
the 2008 financial crisis and the Occupy Wall Street backlash, it's been devastating for any kind of trust towards political institutions. Yes. Yes, or yes. Financial institutions and even like the any kind of elite <laughs> at all. Yeah. You know, I lectured about this today and I was trying to explain about the relationship between reform movements and radical social action. And as I'm thinking through what the resistance to Trump is going to look like in New York and California that have the largest populations and the most electoral college votes and, you know, these huge, dense, networked, prolific, capital-heavy cities and rural America, which is just, there's just such a paucity of resources, I'm really struck by sort of how that how this moment is going to look because it's going to look different in those different spaces. The urban spaces have this political cover and the political capital and the financial capital to be much more radical in their politics. And in the spaces in rural America that no longer have unions or never did, like Arkansas, in places where there's so little wealth and there is so much misinformation and lack of education, it's much harder to create these radical kinds of social movements, right? Because there's nobody in the poor rural centers that are, are able to be lifted up to have a space to occupy within the party or outside of the party on either side to consolidate the messaging and build momentum for social change. And so that's why you see in the United States, especially for as big as it is, the major social movements generally coalesce in cities, right? Where you have dense networks of people who can build broad-based coalitions. It's much harder to do in rural areas where there are no, where there are no labor unions and where uh, the left does not embrace embrace religious spaces that are already highly networked and extremely wealthy. So when I think about what's happening now, there is a loss of trust for sure, but also people are not participating in their local culture. So I also sort of feel like they only themselves to blame. And by them, I really mean white liberals because it's not like white liberals are participating to the extent that they should be in their civic life. That's just bullshit, self-aggrandizing. It's just simply not true. They're not doing everything that they can to build equality for other people. They're not seizing the day. It's not this carpe diem thing where they're all out giving 100% of their effort to build a more equitable country. That's just not true. Uh, and now a bunch of those white people, middle class and upper middle class white people have their feelings hurt because they trusted in a candidate and she lost because of this outmoded notion of the electoral college. And I'm sorry that they are still crying about it, but at the end of the day, they didn't put the work in. So they have nobody to blame for well, themselves. It's part of the scourge of capitalism. I mean, these people. <laughs> it's have, part of, or like the whole. <laughs> it could be that. These people have been driven. <laughs> you just drop that in there. You're like, the evil baddie is definitely the capitalist monster. I'm with you, girl. Go. It's real. I mean, these these people have the resources to be at, involved to in shape civic, civic life, but they are also hoarding the wealth slaves to, to the wage and to consumption and they are alienated from most of the people in their communities especially people who are different from them and who need more political resources and they don't feel compelled to act on their behalf oh, yeah. because it would interrupt them leaning in to gain more social control and political control yeah. and power and money. And being passionate <laughs> about travel. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> right. Those are the same people. Right. No, they won't they won't do it. And and uh, and so but I think being beat this way a lot of people on the left said this 
during the campaign and the election season, like being beat this badly and this brutally should be a wake up call that that politics as usual is not going to cut it for the Democratic Party. And they're going to have to accommodate the left and find a way to understand interest convergence in a way that also understands the relationship between rural America and urbanization. I don't know if they can, but they have to figure that out in order to move the ball down the field in a way that changes the contemporary political climate. It's certainly ripe for it. Is it bad for me to say that I don't trust them to do it? No, of <laughs> course mean, not. I, this is That's not a trust thing. That's a predictability thing. That's not a trust thing. You don't have to have any right. kind of <laughs> interpersonal trust in their ability to execute the thing. But it's, at this point, especially with climate change and, I mean, and global environmental catastrophe looming, you know, there is much more exigency for them to suck less now. I'm not being, I mean, obviously I don't take up the optimist tip very frequently, so I'm not going to do that now. But I'm saying that the conditions look differently perhaps now than they might have 10 years ago or 12 years ago or 15 years ago. And the call to action is greater. And the fact that the dude lost, what, by 3.2 million popular votes and the fact that 12 million of his supporters when they voted for him were like, I don't really like him. And the fact that he's creating all this hostile dissension within his own party. And the fact that it's going to be a giant phallic circle jerk among all the people in his cabinet because there are no women to broker power and it's just going to be a giant you know, sausage fest. All of those things suggest to me that there is much more political uncertainty and a much less cohesive political vision for America in this moment, which the Democrats should absolutely capitalize on, crush in the midterm elections, and flip back a bunch of houses. But in order to do that, white liberals have to give up some money and some power and some time and make it happen. Now, whether they do that or not, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, history doesn't is not is not generous with what white liberals have done to save themselves or their communities, but. I think that this is a different kind of moment to reframe the exigency in a way that would get grab their money, their time, and their attention for the long game and not just a short flip. So there's a space for radical left ideas to circulate here and have traction in a way that is much more useful than, than other people might think. Right. It's hard for me to see voting uh, in, the, in the elections coming up in two years as any kind of relief from the political violence. I mean, obviously, I don't think that voting is the most important part of a democracy in terms of securing its future. It's a part, and and money is more important, quite frankly, especially in an oligarchy like we're in now. But uh, if Trump gets to fill all 100 of those federal vacancies and gets one or two Supreme Court choices, I think you'll feel quite differently about that. Because really, everybody's freaked out about Congress, but they're missing the the ball. The ball should be on the judiciary. It's about to get gutted. So that's where the safeguards are. The safeguards, I mean, Congress is fairly static. It's a static kind of place. And it's about punishing the incumbent party for screwing up and rewarding somebody else for being the outsider and the one who doesn't have the record of badness. But the judiciary is about to get completely hosed. <laughs> it's going to get totally fucked. I mean, it's it's it, the catastrophe is there. It's the environment and the judiciary. So all of the rest of this stuff, for me, it's a lot of insider baseball for people who do politics, and so that's interesting. But on the whole, I think that those are the places where the catastrophic damage will be, and it will be long-term, and it will be very – it will be intractable. So when I think about political trust, um, you know, I'm thinking now about – 
how to create better listeners and consumers of information so they can think about the long game and not just their own personal interests. So on an an interpersonal level, I'm thinking about intimacy, obviously, and empathy as spaces for creating cohesive new political visions that uh, erase and replace outmoded conventions of, of civic work. Um, and I'm thinking about sort of the admonition about what to read. I mean, my problem is not so much that people listen to Fox News, although it's a broken record of anger and xenophobia and sexism and violence. My problem is that they're doing that instead of reading anything that has any in-depth reporting or any verifiable data or any warranted claims. And so if people want a more informed government that they can believe in, then they themselves actually have to do the work. It's not just the institutions have to somehow magically get better. People have to take more responsibility for what they know and don't know, what they share on Facebook, where they put their money, who they're supporting in their community, where their kids go to school, whether or not they're in the PTA, whether or not they serve on local and county boards, whether what kind of public service they engage in instead of their hobbies. And those are the things that actually fundamentally transform culture, and that's about everyday sacrifices that help build a stronger and healthier, healthier and happier community. So I would like to see people read longer, harder things. I would like to see us dump a shit ton of money into public education. I would like to give up the farce of charter schools like they're going to be some sort of panacea for variables that they can't even pretend to address. I would like to see people understand that they're that nobody's going to save them. The government's not going to save you. Some new leader's not going to save you. The only thing that you can do is band together with the people who live around you, which is it seems like a radical notion today because it's hyper-collectivist, but it's fundamentally part of the bedrock of what American life has been because we had a revolution <laughs> to get here. So in some ways, it's also intrinsically American. So I think that the point about leaning back from implicit desire for consistency has to be at the top of the agenda if we're actually going to teach people how to build a government made of themselves that they can actually trust. approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.